Hi, I'm Hypermobile, and if you're listening to this, I'm guessing you might be too. Hello, my name is Alex, and welcome to Help, I'm Hypermobile. We're on episode four, and today we're talking all about exercise. And I don't know if you can hear the enthusiasm in my voice, but exercise is one of my favorite topics. It's one way which, if it's safe for patients to to do exercise, we can help support hypermobile people in having really profound changes in their health. Now, again, I want to stress every hypermobile individual is different. It's not exercise is not possible or even safe for every hypermobile patient. And this is why, as always, it's so important that you speak with your qualified and trusted healthcare provider to make sure that you are doing what is safe and correct for you. Now, before we go any further, I do want to give a little shout out (laughs) to uh, someone who took the time to send some feedback in. I actually received a lot of feedback from the first three episodes. It was, the response was overwhelming, quite frankly. Thank you to everyone who's taken the time to subscribe, download, like, share, follow, uh, or write in. And Vicky, thank you so much for taking the time to say, uh, to leave this comment. Vicky said, I'm leaving a 10 star review here because I couldn't find the review bit. I think we can only have five stars on Spotify, but I'll take 10. Thank you so much, Vicky. Brilliant information. I used this in a recent medical consultation and it couldn't have helped me more. Follow the advice. Vicky, I'm so happy you found this information helpful because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make some or just provide everything I wish hypermobile people knew about a bunch of different topics. So uh, I'm so happy that you actually found it useful. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a few different things when it comes to exercise. So firstly, uh, we're going to talk about exercise just in general, why it's important. You already know it's important, so we won't spend too much time on that. We're going to talk a little bit about my personal journey and the role that exercise has played in terms of my, my body and how I'm able to live my life. We will then go on to talk about eight things that you need your healthcare provider to be thinking about when they're working with you to help you develop uh, an exercise strategy for your unique body. So these are eight really really, really key points. I can't wait to get into them. And finally, we're going to be talking a little bit about how to tell the difference between the pain of re-injury and the pain, and I said that in quotation marks because it's not, it shouldn't really be pain, of healthy muscular fatigue. And these are two entirely different things and it took me decades to figure that out. So I hope I can help you figure figure it out a bit faster than I did. Exercise is important. If exercise was a pill, everyone would take it. The benefits are undeniable. In fact, if you are in the strongest third of the population at midlife, you are two and a half times more likely to live to 100. And I like this statistic, and you can look in the show notes for all the research that I'll mention in today's episode, but I like the statistic because it highlights the fact that firstly, exercise does good things for you, which we know it does, but secondly, you don't have to be that Olympic gold medalist. You don't need to be in the top 1% of people to get the benefits of exercise. You just need to be in the top third. And that's something which, although it's probably, it's not going to be achievable for everyone, if it's achievable for you, that's a great goal to work toward, okay? Now, here I'm referencing Professor Keith Barr, and he, he says, we do strength exercise so we can have a long and happy life. And we do strength exercise in particular because it improves longevity, and the ability to do things. So if you are strong, you are going to be able to go up and down stairs. You're going to be able to lift objects. And this is literally you interacting with the world around you physically. 
And for people who have never had issues doing this, you don't appreciate how how amazing it is just to be able to interact with the world around you until you lose that ability. Um, it's something that I think so many people take for granted. And exercise is one way that you can try, again, if it's possible for you, to protect or even improve your ability to do that. Now, Professor Keith Barr goes on to say that we do endurance exercise because it feeds the brain. And as someone who's talking from a hypermobile perspective, I am hypermobile myself, but also I'm a UK registered osteopath and I work with hypermobile patients. I want you to think of exercise as also feeding the body. So with conditions involving hypermobility, for example, hypermobility spectrum disorder or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, we see a lot of dysautonomia. And this means altered function of something called the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system, in really simple terms, you can think of it as the part of your nervous system that does all the stuff you don't have to think about. So I'm breathing right now and I'm not having to think, inhale, exhale. It's my body's just doing that. Thank goodness. And um, it does things like digest your food, for example. So autonomic nervous system does a lot of things. Autonomic nervous system also uh, is in charge of how your body gets nutrition and oxygen and other things to the bits of tissue in you that require it. And one system that really requires a lot of uh, oxygenated and nutrient-rich blood is your musculoskeletal system. And if you're a hypermobile person, a good example of dysautonomia might be that you have really cold fingers and toes even when it doesn't make sense. That's your autonomic nervous system likely being a little bit weird. As always, if you're concerned, go see your doctor. But um, we see that people who are hypermobile have altered delivery and altered like flow of um, of, nutri of nutrition, of, of blood, sometimes of lymphatic fluid, etc. around their body. And exercise in particular, endurance exercise or aerobic cardiovascular exercise, so that type of kind of lower intensity exercise done for a slightly longer period of time, that's a way that you can get your cardiovascular system working a little bit to try and deliver nutrition to those tissues. Now, as we age, and this is true for everyone, it becomes harder to maintain muscle mass. So your musculoskeletal system is in some ways a luxury. If my body is trying to protect me in the present moment, and the, the analogy I like to use here is thinking of the body as a bioeconomy, and if we're trying to protect Alex, we're going to prioritize my brain, my heart, and my respiratory system, because I will die very quickly if those are not functioning. Things like my hair and my nails and my muscles and joints, those come a lot further down the list. So as we age, some of our processes, especially those involving metabolism, which is how we kind of, we get things actually into our body, um, those processes become less efficient and they start to work differently or, or not work at all sometimes. And that's why we start to see a decline in tissue quality in people's, um, for example, bones. You'll hear of a lot of people as they age starting to get osteoporotic or have osteopenia. They're having changes in the quality of their bones. We see the same thing in, in muscle and connective tissue. We see a, a decline in quality. And one way that we can try and counter that decline in quality is we can say we can use movement to stress the tissues physically and support the idea that we need those tissues. When you're exercising, you're saying, actually, I know I'm 80, but I need to be able to go up and down stairs. <laughs> I know I'm 35, but I need to be able to pick my toddler up because they need me to help like to raise them <laughs> and do things with them. So by using a an appropriate stimulus of some kind, we can try and counteract this, this decline. Now, people who have issues with collagen and other aspects of their connective tissue, they're at a huge disadvantage here because from the moment they were born, they've had issues with the function of that system. So they're at a disadvantage. However, 
In some cases, and for some patients, we can use exercise to try and address some of those, uh, those changes there and to try and prevent these negative changes long-term. Additionally, for hypermobile patients, one big benefit of doing strength training is that for some patients, they can actually, in a way, build their own braces if they get enough muscle mass. So because I started my career working in, in sports and now I work mainly with hypermobile patients, we do see these, these muscly hypermobile patients. Um, and these are these will be people who generally just through sheer luck manage to find a way of exercising that works for them and they've been able to maintain some muscle mass. And that muscle mass helps their joints to feel stable. It helps to prevent some of the, the injury that happens as a consequence of that instability due to the hypermobility that other hypermobile patients struggle with. So if it's possible for a patient to build muscle mass, they need to be supported in that in every way, because this is a way that we really establish a positive and hugely beneficial tissue change. And although it's not possible for everyone, for those patients who it's possible for, we need to make sure that they're getting that really good clinical outcome because it is life-changing long-term. Now, before we go any further, I do want to mention, again, there will be some people exercise is not safe for and not possible for. And if you're one of those people listening to this, I want to tell you that's okay. We will talk in future episodes about what can be done in your situation and looking at ways of improving quality of life and protecting function. But this episode today is particularly targeted at the people who've been told it's safe for them to exercise and they just, they're hitting a wall and they're not sure what to do and they're not making progress. So speaking of hitting walls, let's, uh, let's talk about my journey. So I started as a swimmer growing up because we were told that swimming was like the safest and best thing I could do. So I was swimming and um, I started to have shoulder pain like a lot of swimmers. And that shoulder pain led to chronic neck pain as someone who was, I was in my early teens when I was having those symptoms. I was maybe 13, maybe even younger. And uh, chronic neck pain in children, we, we should not be normalizing that. But anyways, I was told it was, you know, stop complaining, stop being so sensitive, etc. And it got worse and worse and worse. And eventually I saw a physiotherapist when I was about 16 or so. And the physiotherapist tried to help me, did some treatment. It didn't work. You know, people were not aware that my shoulders were really hypermobile at the time. The physiotherapy and exercises I was given, and they made my shoulders feel worse, not better. So I was eventually told by the exasperated physiotherapist that my that I had simply worn my shoulders out. I will never forget those words. I was told I had worn my shoulders out and that I needed to just not raise my arm above 90 degrees anymore because that was where I had pain. It's a really common presentation. Patients will have pain raising their arm above 90 degrees. And I was told just to stop doing that. <laughs> so at the age of 16, I quit swimming and I stopped raising my arms above 90 degrees. I didn't realize that this at the time, but that was a very, very problematic thing for me to do because I lost the muscle mass that I had, which wasn't that much to begin with, and my joints became even more unstable. My low point was in my early 20s, and its I always thought 21 would be the best year of my life, and it was the absolute worst. So if you're someone in your early 20s and you're listening to this, you, you couldn't pay me to be 21 again. It sucked. But I was, in, I was in my early 20s and the low point was going home from Christmas in the car with my family and going over speed bumps and literally trying not to cry as we went over a speed bump every time because of the agony in my shoulder just from the, the jostling motion of the car going over the speed bump. So that was the low point for me. I also had headaches that had me in bed for days at a time. I would have a pillow over my face um, and I would just lie in the dark just hoping it would end and not sure when or if it would. And that, if you're someone who gets those headaches, they really, really suck. 
<laughs> Anyways, through some trial and error, my degree, studying, all these things, I talked a little bit in episode one about that, but I started to kind of try to figure out what I could do to improve my shoulder on my own because I, I was done with physiotherapy at that point and I was, I was done with manual therapy in general. So I went uh, to the gym. I couldn't afford a personal trainer. I couldn't afford more treatment, to be honest. I, I was just on my own. And I made these little programs and I was trying to find ways to move safely and not feel pain and, and do something because I, I felt like I, I wanted more muscle mass because that would make my shoulders feel more stable and more safe. And eventually and very carefully over time, I managed to exercise without injury which that, that's the trick here, right? So for all of you who've been told, oh yeah, just build muscle mass, there's nothing just about it. If you're a hypermobile person and you're at a high risk of injury, and on top of that, you're not gonna be able to feel your body in space probably that well, so it's really hard to move with good technique, especially if you're on your own. It's so hard to exercise and not get injured. Like it's hard for the average person to build muscle mass, let alone a hypermobile person. So if you've struggled with this, you're not alone in that. But I, I managed to achieve that magic combination of not getting injured and exercising. And uh, I built up some muscle mass over time. And the point where I felt better, the point where I felt like my life had changed. And you know what? It would have been okay if I just stayed here forever. This was the point I felt like I made a big improvement was when I was able to run for 10 minutes without shoulder pain. I remember I was on the treadmill at a mall in West London. I remember looking down at the screen and watching it go nine minutes, 46 seconds, nine minutes, 47 seconds, you know, getting into that nine minutes, 52 seconds, and then nine minutes, 59 seconds and 10 minutes. And I couldn't believe that I had run 10 minutes without my shoulder hurting because I was literally listening to my shoulders, waiting for them to have that horrible, horrible, intense pain that they would have. And they didn't hurt. And I couldn't believe it. And actually, I did an Instagram post that day talking about how thrilled I was because that was a life-changing improvement for me. Now, if you've uh, looked at any of my other content online, you'll know I've gone on to do a lot more sporty things. Some of them have different degrees of risk, and that is risk that I've chosen to take on because it, I decided it was safe for me. And I've gone on to do things like, for example, develop a really heavy snatch. So that's a type of Olympic weightlifting movement where you lift the bar overhead. And I got up to 52 and a half kilograms, which is, I think it's around like 115 pounds, which is huge. Like I, I have a video of doing that lift and that's probably one of the happiest moments of my life because I never thought that would be possible for me. And I've gone on to do things like, for example, long uh, endurance pieces, like a half marathon row on a rowing machine, holding a pretty fast pace on that too. So because I love sports and because my body lets me, I have gone on to do a bit of an overcorrection. And uh, what I want to say to anyone out there is if you're someone who wants to, ha you have those big dreams and you want to do those sporty things, keep them. Find a, find a qualified healthcare provider who can help you talk in realistic terms about what's possible for you or what's not possible. And find the, the smallest steps first. You have to find those little steps along the way. So for me, step one was literally just being able to raise my arm overhead without shoulder pain. So you have to find the steps in your journey. I promised we'd get into some really useful information today. And the first thing I wanna get into is how I think about exercise. I actually call it my philosophy of exercise. I'm half Greek and I, maybe I've always wanted a philosophy. I don't know, but this is this is my mental framework of how I think about exercise or my philosophy. So there are three reasons why people exercise. People exercise either to look a certain way. So they exercise for aesthetics. They exercise for their body to be able to do certain things. So that's exercising for fitness. 
And there's that third reason, which is exercising for tissue health. They want their body to feel a certain way. And most of the patients that I'm working with these days, they are patients who are looking to exercise for tissue health. Now, if we look in that category in particular, there are three ways that people can exercise for tissue health. You can do strength training. And of course, within each of these broad categories, there are subcategories. So for strength training, you can do free weights, you can do resistance training, etc. You can do balance or proprioceptive training. And there are, of course, different ways of doing that. Or you can do cardiovascular training, and there are kind of two main ways you can do that. You can do an anaerobic uh, cardiovascular program where you're kind of doing those sprint pieces, you're out of breath, it's short, it's intense. Or you can do more aerobic style training where your heart rate is going to be a little bit lower, it's slightly longer sessions. I like to think of it like different gears in a car. So you're just working in a different gear. That's all it is, but it's still affecting your cardiovascular system. Now, the standard advice, typically what hypermobile patients are told, is that they have to, firstly, safety is important, which it is. You have to do it safe for you. I'm not saying it's not, but they're told that they have to do certain things. So they'll be told, oh, you can you have to do resistance training only. And I've always found that recommendation really weird because the world is made of free weights. So although there's nothing wrong with TheraBands, I think that any program needs to, whenever possible, support the patient in being able to safely navigate free weights because that's what the world is made of. A coffee weight is a free weight. Your phone is a free weight. So that's my brief thought on strength training. We'll have a separate episode on all of these different types of exercise, but that's my quick little thought there. When it comes to, you know, balance proprioceptive training, again, that is hugely valuable. I like to think of it as you're you're making the you're making the race car driver better able to drive the car. So if the hypermobile body is not the best car, it's not working so well, maybe those ankles are rolling all the time, it might make sense to start with balance and proprioceptive training because you're working with that person to make them a better driver of their body. So even if the the ligaments have been injured and they're not behaving the same way and we have some hypermobility in the ankle, if you can make that person better able to balance on that on that tissue on that joint and to avoid those ankle sprains, then you're going to prevent injury. So sometimes balance and proprioceptive training is the right place to start. However, I tend to have my patients start whenever possible and safe on something called a low intensity steady state training program. For my patients with an athletic background, it may be a steady state training program, but typically it's going to be a low intensity steady state training program. And I do this simply because it gets them feeling better faster. We're getting some, uh, as we talked about at the start of the episode about those uh, dysautonomia issues, it's a way you can address some of those. So you're getting some blood flow to those tissues, you're getting some endorphins. And for patients who are stressed about going to the gym, it can be nice sometimes to not have to worry about doing all these different movements, using these different weights or finding these machines. It's, it's a way that I can almost control variables more precisely. Even, for example, if you're doing a strength program with a patient and they're having to jump from a a six kilo um, dumbbell to an eight kilo, that's a huge jump. Whereas if you're doing a steady state style program or something that's, uh, you know, we're using a time domain, you can be a lot more precise in how you scale it. You can say, okay, instead of doing three rounds of three minutes, we're going to do three rounds of three minutes and 10 seconds. So it gives you much smaller increments that you can work with. But again, I want to stress at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual patient. I have patients who see me, we start with strength training. I have patients who see me and we start with balance proprioceptive training. And this leads into the eight things you must make sure your healthcare provider is considering when they're making an exercise program for you. The first thing, it's, it's a tie for first. So you've heard me say safety a million times in this episode. Safety is important. 
We don't want people having bad things happen to them when they're exercising. And this happens to hypermobile people all the time. So I guess we'll put safety at number one, but coming in very, very close at number two is accessibility. And I'm talking about accessibility in terms of money. So for example, say that Reformer Pilates is this perfect cure-all for hypermobile patients. Say all of them should be doing Reformer Pilates. That's not possible. We have a cost of living crisis in the UK. There are people struggling to afford food and their homes. And for some patients, they're not going to be able to afford that type of training. So you have to look at what's possible in terms of financial ability for that individual. We also need to look at accessibility in terms of time. Everyone has different commitments. Some people are parents. Some people have jobs where they have to be there for a certain amount of hours. We need to look at what's possible in terms of time for individuals. Because even if I make the most perfect, amazing program, if it's not possible in terms of time or money, it's absolutely pointless and it's just going to lead to the patient feeling bad. So that's really, really important. Of course, in terms of accessibility, we also need to think of, you know, geographical location. We need to think of just literal ability. Like, can the patient, like, get to the place that we're talking about? Are they able to use their body in that space? Is it a place where they feel safe and comfortable? So accessibility, even in, in that almost literal sense, is important as well. So accessibility is, a, is almost number one, and it's certainly number two in terms of things I think people should consider. Number three is what does the patient want to do? I have seen patients where I would have preferred in some ways for them to begin with a low intensity steady state style training program or some cardiovascular exercise, but the patients told me, you know what, I love hip lifting, I want to get back into it, lifting makes me, you know, I want to be strong, it makes me feel happy, and I will take that into consideration when helping them make that clinical decision about what exercise program is right for them. It's important, especially when people feel down and they're tired and most chronic pain hypermobile patients feel exhausted and sad. It's important to think of what makes that person feel happy and incorporate it into their program. I cannot stress how important this is. I think it's something that's overlooked. We're always looking for what's what's best or oh, what, what does the research say or what, what protocol, what you know, what, what does it say for this this type of person? What's best for them? You know what? They're an individual with thoughts and feelings and preferences. And we need to think of what's best for them as individuals. I actually had a patient, this was um, this was quite a while ago, but this patient really wanted to rollerblade. Rollerblading made her heart sing. Is rollerblading high injury risk? Absolutely. <laughs> Were we starting from the bottom with this patient? Were this Was there a lot of stuff going on? Yes, there was. But you know what? I told the patient, you want a rollerblade. These are all the things we need to get to to do that. I'm not sure if it'll be possible, but we can try. And that patient ended up getting to the point where through, you know, they, I made sure that they acknowledged the risks and we did everything we could to reduce them. They were able to rollerblade. So again, it's about thinking of individual patients and doing that risk assessment, but always making the decision and supporting the patient and making the decision that's right for that patient. Uh, when it comes to risk, a quick note, there are risks with exercise of all, all kinds. There are different risks. There are also risks though from not exercising. So again, it's about taking a, a holistic risk assessment. People will say like Pilates is safe and yoga is bad. And that's simply not true. It's all about how it's done. It's all about the individual patient. So again, there are, there are patients I know of who get injured doing Pilates because they struggle with lifting their, their head off the, the mat. Even if they're, in a re they're using perfect technique, they're having one-to-one -one coaching, their neck is just too long, too hypermobile, and it injures them. So for them, they would have to do a modified Pilates program or just avoid that kind of crunch type position. And there may be another form of exercise that's safer for that patient. So it's always about what's right for that patient. We, we look at principles here. We don't just look at arbitrary, this is good or this is bad, because that doesn't achieve anything. Now, 
we also want to look at the patient and think of what their primary symptoms are or what do they wish to address. So for my patients who are having issues with dysautonomia, they're having issues with fatigue or lightheadedness, if it's safe for them to do some form of cardiovascular exercise and they want to, that's a fantastic place to start. We can get them wearing a chest strap heart rate monitor. They can get that real-time feedback on their heart. We can train in different parameters that are individualized to them and how their cardiovascular system works. And that's a really, really cool place to begin. Um, however, for a patient who, for example, they want to stop rolling their ankle, we're going to start with balanced proprioceptive training. So again, it's looking at that patient's individual physical self and thinking, okay, what does this, what does this patient want from their body right now? What are they trying to achieve? How can I help them achieve that? So that's a really important point to consider as well. And of course, we want to think of what is the goal. So this kind of goes back to, it's kind of similar to what does the patient want to do? What makes their heart sing? What makes them happy? But we want to think of what is the goal. So sometimes I'll have patients, for example, I had a patient once who was struggling to hold his daughter. And that was a goal that we worked towards in a very particular way with weights and specific exercises. We wanted to um, help support him in exercising in a, a way that would result in him being able to hold his child. So we always want that exercise program to be tailored not only to the individual patient, but to what that individual patient needs to do in their life. Maybe that patient needs to work to pay rent. So again, we're thinking of the exercise program and finding a way to make sure that it's tailored to what that patient needs to do with their body. And that's why when I do a medical history, I, I ask the patient, what's going on? We get the whole picture. But I usually at somewhere near the end of it, I'll say, what do you need your body to do for you? And they'll tell me, you know, I need to look after my child. I need to walk my dog. I need to pay my rent. I need to, um, you know, see my friends or whatever. They'll tell me what they what they need their body for, to do for them and what they want their body to do. So again, thinking of those goals is key and, and what that patient really wants the outcome of the program to be. Because if the patient feels motivated and feels inspired, they're going to follow the exercise program perfectly. And if it's a program that's been made uh, in a way which is informed by physiology and by what we know about tissue remodeling and giving that right stimulus to get those changes, then you're going to have a successful outcome for the most part. And of course, we always want to think to how will progress be measured? How are we going to know if the ship is heading in the right direction? Emerson has a really lovely essay on called Self-Reliance, and he uses this image of a sailboat, and it's trying to get to its end destination. And I don't know if any of you have been sailing, but a sailboat doesn't go in a straight line from point A to point B. It tacks. It goes a bit to the right, a bit to the left, and we get this almost mini zigzag line. And that's what this exercise program for anyone is going to look like long term. We're going to we're going to use information that we gain from that program to inform how we can improve it and make it better for that patient and whatever their body's like in four weeks or two months or three months or whatever. We're going to be having regular check ins to see how do we tweak it? How do we make it more challenging or how do we address this new symptom that's come up or whatever? So that's extremely important. Again, for patients, it's nice sometimes to have some type of objective feedback. So that could be, of course, looking at things like, are we able to lift more weight? Are we able to do more repetitions? Do we just simply feel better doing the movement? And it can certainly be things like, for example, biomarkers like a heart rate monitor and getting that heart rate feedback in real time and seeing, you know, is that heart rate a little bit more steady? Are we able to keep it here with more control? Um, is that, you know, how, how is that behaving? So I'm a big fan of data collection and looking at that in the context of exercise, also because it feeds into supporting patients in developing body literacy. And that's being able to read and interpret the signs of your body. So I've had so many patients who when they start their low intensity steady state training program, they're doing their, typically I'll start around like three rounds of three minutes. It's a very 
low starting point that's I try to make exercise programs hard for people to injure themselves. So it's kind of it's a program where I'm trying to pitch the ball at the right speed. And um they will find it so interesting how their heart rate is entirely different on a day where they haven't slept or they've had like five cups of coffee or they're just really, really stressed or seeing how their body copes with the heat. Right now we have a heat wave in the UK and people's heart rates, if they're exercising, are going to be affected by that. So it's a way that you can get patients really involved in what's going on. And you can also help put that um, a limit on their training. So if they're at a certain point, you're going to say, you know what, if you're seeing this type of data, you're going to call it a day, you're going to leave the gym, we're done, or get off your bike while you're on at home or whatever, you're done. Uh, because long term, we want to help these patients develop independence. We want them to be able to support themselves in their health as much as possible. And this leads into kind of my, my final point well, of how will good and bad days be handled Good and bad days are so challenging when you're working with hypermobile patients because you'll have a patient who seems to be doing great and then something will happen and they will feel awful. And we've talked in previous episodes about kind of the interaction between inflammation and fibrosis, which is the technical term for scar tissue. But we may have a patient who, for example, eats something which really irritates their gut and that causes a mast cell reaction or they have a histamine intolerance or whatever. And that will make that patient feel potentially just really bad on, on a day. And it will seem random unless you know what's going on. But having um, a promotion or demotion system built into the program is key. So I, when I program for patients, I'll have certain rules and I'll say, look, if you're able to do this, uh, this exact exercise, this work, this workout, let's call it a workout, this workout, this training session, if you're able to do it this many times and you get this type of biomarker feedback and we're looking, it's looking in this way, then you're allowed to change this parameter. You're allowed to add like 30 seconds or whatever. You're allowed to progress the program in this way. But I'll say to the patient, however, if you go in and you're feeling poorly and you're getting, you know, you can just tell that your body's not quite feeling its best then you have to make that call to demote yourself and you don't feel bad about it. You just say, you know what? I'm not feeling good today. We're going to change this program or I'm just going to leave and I'm going to call it a day. So patients really need to be supported in navigating good days and bad days. And uh, it's not easy. It's a skill that takes time to learn over time. But with the right support, this is something that can really help a patient in so many aspects of their lives. So learning how to cope with that, how to cope with that almost, it's like a changeable weather. If you think of the, the weather on a Caribbean island, how it can go from really sunny to thunderstorms all of a sudden, that's like a hypermobile body. That's what it's like. So patients need to become um, equipped. They need their umbrella ready. They need their sunglasses. They need everything with them so that they feel in control and they're able to deal with those changes and have successful outcomes simply through being able to deal with their body uh, at an incredibly high level. They, they almost they become experts in their own body. That's the outcome I want for my patients at least. Now, speaking of experts, being able to distinguish between the pain of re-injury and the pain, in quotation marks, of healthy muscular fatigue is incredibly hard. It took me a very, very long time to be able to do this. And I, I think back and I cringe to when I was swimming and I had such intense shoulder pain and my coach was saying, push through the pain or pain is uh, fear leaving the body. And I was trying so hard to push through it, but I wasn't pushing through healthy muscular fatigue. I was pushing through pain of injury and of re-injury. And um, if you don't have someone to, there to support you and being able to distinguish the two, it can be really, really hard. So I'm going to break down my tips on how I help my patients and how I actually myself distinguish between the pain of re-injury and the pain or the feeling of healthy muscular fatigue. Now, if you're not aware, 
exercise is traumatic, even for people who are going to the gym and they're doing their, you know, their healthy, their perfect gym session, they are subjecting their tissue to microtrauma. And they're doing that because they're trying to stimulate it to grow back in a healthier or better way. That is how exercise works. So you are supposed to feel a little bit like, like you've worked on something after an exercise program. That's okay. But the problem with hypermobile patients is because they're often people who've had chronic pain their whole lives, they don't know what pain feels like. It's incredibly hard. It's not talked about enough. And on top of that, we often do see different kinds of neurological changes, which make it hard for that person to even really feel pain. So you will hear of people who like walked home with a fracture and you're just like, what? How do you do that? <laughs> so, so we see this, this type of altered pain processing. So working in the way that I do, I like to make everything very systematic and very precise. Here's how I distinguish between the pain of, uh, of injury and pain of healthy muscular fatigue. So firstly, pain of re-injury is typically going to feel focal. It'll feel like a point. It'll feel precise. It'll feel intense. Someone on a TikTok video I made described it as feeling a high, they described it in pitch and they said the pain of re-injury is a high pitch and the pain of healthy muscular fatigue is a low pitch. So I don't know if that'll make sense to you, but that's how they described it. Also, if it feels at all like any of these words, if it feels like uh, ripping, tearing, if it feels like grinding, pinching, catching, that's not pain of healthy muscular fatigue. That's pain of re-injury. Additionally, it should make sense given the exercise. So if you're someone who, for example, is uh, finding your neck is sore when you're doing like crunches or whatever, that's not the that's not the intended stimulus like of the exercise. That's not what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to maybe work on your core if you're doing crunches again. They're not something that I would really do, but whatever. Let's say you're doing that. Now, if you're feeling neck pain there, you will see there are personal trainers and coaches who will argue that's you building a strong neck. No. It's, it's not. If you, if you feel pain of re-injury during a movement, don't do it. You can find different ways to strengthen tissues. Just don't do that, okay? And it doesn't make sense in the context of the exercise because it's not the aim of the exercise. So if, if what you're feeling doesn't make sense, so you're feeling your neck when you should feel your core, or you're feeling your back when you should feel your thighs, then it doesn't, it's not right. You're injuring something. Don't do it. Find a different movement. Just try something else. On that note as well, if you're doing a two-legged exercise or a two-arm exercise and you're only feeling pain on one side, then you're probably having a re-injury occur because you should be physically exhausting. You're causing physical fatigue to both sides. You're using both sides. Why are you only feeling your left shoulder when you should be feeling both? So again, that's another way you can think about it. Additionally, you'll find that a uh, the pain of re-injury, it's, it's not going to typically improve through training. So if you're doing the same shoulder strengthening program and you're feeling intense pain in your right shoulder, over time, it's not going to go away. If anything, it's going to get worse. Whereas if it is, uh, quote unquote, that sensation of pain uh, or that feeling of healthy muscular fatigue, you would expect it to lessen over time if you're going back and doing those sessions that you did from months ago. It shouldn't feel, you shouldn't be able to feel it because you've become fitter. Your muscles are able to cope with that increased load. Now, if we're thinking of what the pain of healthy muscular fatigue feels like, typically it will be across a muscle group. It's not going to be just one point. It's going to feel kind of diffuse. People who are hypermobile, who have gone on to be able to exercise safely and who experience the pain of healthy muscular fatigue, they often report that it feels actually pleasant. It feels nice, which goes to show how pain processing alterations can really change how you experience the world around you. But they report that it feels nice. So it'll feel kind of, it will feel exhausting. It will feel fatiguing, but it's not going to feel like that white hot intensity 
painful re-injury, it's going to just feel like a, a diffuse, healthy muscular fatigue. Now, what I like to say is if you're ever in doubt, err on the side of caution and assume it's pain of re-injury. If you're in doubt, err on the side of caution. But learning to distinguish between those two things is probably the most essential skill that anyone who's hypermobile and trying to exercise and trying to build fitness can have. And if I was a fairy godmother, it's something I would give to every single hypermobile person because it, it becomes confusing when you injure yourself from things you shouldn't and you don't know how to feel and you have coaches who are saying push through the pain. And it's important that we work on improving that patient's um, internal assessment skills of what they're feeling in their bodies. So listening to your body and being kind to your body is important. And it's something that can be improved with the right support. We have reached the end of today's episode. It's certainly not the last we're going to be talking about exercise. I have so much more to say on the topic. But if you have any questions, if you have any feedback, please write in. I love hearing from you. Um, and if you do want to take a minute to leave a review, if you can leave a 10-star review, of course, I'd love it. But if you want to leave a five-star review, of course, that's fine too. Or whatever review you feel uh, suits the show so far, please do that. I would be so grateful uh, for that type of feedback from you as well. And I do want to stress, keep an eye out for the Hypermobility HQ membership. Launch is happening this Friday at 5 p.m. BST. If you're not on my mailing list, please make sure to sign up for that. You can find that in the link in my social media profiles uh, because there will be more information being released about that over the coming days. But I'm so excited to be beginning that. And I'm so excited, of course, to have had you with me for today's episode. I wish you all the best and I'll catch up with you next time. Take care.